Welcome to Live Life Better from Virgin Books in association with Penguin Living. I'm Dominic Frisby and in today's programme, as vast and varied a subject as it is, happiness is the theme. What is it and how can we find it? With me in the studio, I've three guest authors here to help us look towards happiness from three different viewpoints. From our minds, from our stomachs and from our wallets. My first guest is Alexa Frey. She is from the Mindfulness Project and she is the author of I Am Here Now, A Creative Mindfulness Guide. So, hello, Alexa. Hello. First, I need to say I'm the co-author. The so co-author. there's another author ah, okay. to mention, otherwise she won't be happy. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, very good, very good. And so that is the link between mind and happiness, representing the link between food and happiness. We give a warm welcome to healthy food advocate, chef and blogger, Melissa Hemsley, who is also a co-author. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> of Good and Simple and The Art of Eating Well. Melissa, how are you doing today? I'm very, very well, thank you. I'm feeling the happy, positive vibes the happy brewing and i'm excited to know about the money bit (laughs) (laughs) particularly happiness yes and there's lots of smiles here but i can't work out if they're happy smiles or nervous smiles we'll find out in a second (laughs) now representing what for many is the root of all happiness or perhaps it is the root of all evil money 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 speaking on behalf of our wallets our wealth versus worth we've damien fay from money to the masses an excellent website and he is the author of of the 30-day money plan. Hello, Damien. Well, thank you for having me. And my my smile is a genuine one of happiness, I think. Oh, there we go. Excellent, excellent. And we also, ladies and gentlemen, have a fourth guest who will be joining us later, but more about that in a moment. So let's start off with a quick round test into the table. On a scale of 1 to 10, how happy are you? I'll say, well, if you'd asked me last week, I would have probably said 8 but I had a kind of annoying oh, last weekend, <laughs> just just crappy stuff. So I went down, I'm going to say seven is where I am on the happiness scale. And I, I've been at ten and uh, I've been at minus one. But uh, at the moment, seven. So Alexa, where, where, how happy are you? I just wanted to say, I think happiness is changing like the weather. So I think, you know, every day I'm a bit different, but I would also say... Currently, right now in my life, probably about a six and a half or seven as well. Very good. I love that. Happiness is like the weather. We already have <sighs> Put our, our maximum. Yeah. <laughs> Melissa, how happy are you? Oh, I would say um, a solid eight. Yeah. I'm feeling pretty happy. I've just had a nice lunch. I just moved house. Um, I've got fresh bed sheets. And um, what more does life have to offer? Crispy bed sheets. That's crispy it. I'm an eight. <laughs> Do you iron your bed sheets? My mother always insisted on ironing her sheets. No, I don't. I'm a modern woman. So no. I don't even own an iron. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, and that is another link. Maybe we'll explore another day, the link between iron sheets and happiness. <laughs> Damien, how happy are you today? I'm a definite eight. And I think in life, if I can be seven out of ten for nearly anything, any decision or anything like that, I'm doing well. So it's a solid eight. Solid eight. So two eights, a seven and a six and a half. I'm going to ask you the same question at the end of the show and we'll see if the numbers have got higher or lower. Right, let's start with you, Alexa. Tell us what mindfulness means. Mindfulness is a technique where you train your mind to be in the present moment. So you, for example, sit and you meditate and you choose to focus your attention on your breath or, for example, on the soles of your feet. And you then just sit... And you notice that your mind will drift off, 
right? It just drifts off. It's called the default network of our brain. So then you notice where your mind goes off to and you come back to the present moment. And that way we actually train ourselves to be present so that when I'm here right now with you guys, I can be present and my mind is not out somewhere else. The film Groundhog Day is a metaphor for mindfulness, isn't it? Oh, yes. I mean, I don't know if you mean what I mean, but the way I see Groundhog Day being related to mindfulness is you notice doing the same thing again and again. So I might notice repetitively that every time I feel stressed, I run to Pret and have a tuna sandwich with cucumber. That's what I do. (laughs) (laughs) So... If you stop having the tuna sandwich with cucumber, you will feel less stressed because you're breaking the pattern. Is that what you mean? Well, first of all, you just bring awareness to a pattern because often we just do things all the time again and again, and we're not even aware of what's actually happening. So we're breaking down our experience into a moment-by-moment awareness and mindfulness. So then I'm like, okay, I'm stressed. Okay, I'm having a tuna sandwich mindlessly, and then I actually beat myself up. And then once I've observed that for about 10 or 20 times, I'm like, okay, I think I'm ready to change that. And then you notice when you're stressed, you might actually encounter your being stressed with self-compassion, which calms you down, and then you don't need the sandwich anymore, right? I mean, that's very simply put, but you can actually break your patterns that contribute to unhappiness, and that's how you would then be happier, right? I see. Now, I am here now, a creative mindfulness guide. It's pretty obvious from the title and from what you're saying why you wrote the book. So why don't we start with a couple of tips as to how we can kind of become more mindful or get started in in being mindful? Well, one of my favorite tips is always once in a while, just pause, take a breath and actually look up into the sky. I'm do that now. Yeah, we can do that right now. Beautiful. <laughs> Beautiful. The cushioned, carpeted, <laughs> yeah. soundproof ceiling of this basement studio. I love that beige. <laughs> or, you know, look at a tree in the city because I think nothing will ever bring us to presence as much as nature does. Or you're into food. Yeah. So really every time we eat, we spend so much time cooking or thinking about food and or obsessing even about food. What am I going to eat next? Oh, I want to eat now. No, I can't eat now. And then we finally have that tuna cucumber sandwich and we don't taste it. We're not present with it. So I would say connecting with nature, eating mindfully. I think really noticing when we beat ourselves up because I think we're such a highly critical society. Nothing's ever good enough. At least that's how I came to mindfulness, compulsive self-criticism. So actually really having an intention to be kind to yourself and pausing when you are beating yourself up. And if you like, you know, that might sound a bit of total hippie-ish, but like place your hand on your chest and just imagine some kindness flowing from your hand into your chest. Or um, another thing is really bring to mind what you're grateful for, having a gratitude practice, or just like bring to mind what you actually like. Sometimes people don't like the word gratitude because our parents would always tell us like, be grateful. So everybody's (laughs) like, gratitude practice. So just, you know, when you're, you know, before you fall asleep, just think of five things you like or even love and bring them to mind. Like yes. crispy sheets. Yeah, well, like crispy sheets. Exactly, but yeah. be, There's certainly some truth to being grateful for what you have. Not some truth, a lot of truth. <laughs> Melissa, good food, good health. These are two things that we should definitely be grateful for and they're subjects that go hand in hand and they are the central themes to your latest cookbook, Good and Simple, which was written alongside your sister, Jasmine. I was, I was going to say, where did your love of food come from? But kind of everyone loves food, don't they? Yeah. 
I think I came out, you know, nine, almost 10 pounds. So my mum says I was, a, you know, a born eater. Um, well, I didn't intend to go into business with my sister. We didn't intend to cook together for a living. And I certainly, if you'd asked me five years ago, would I be, you know, lucky enough to be sitting here and talking about a book and food and happiness with people? I'd be shocked. Funnily enough, I used to think that cooking was one of those really stressy, sweary, angry things. I don't know which particular chef put that into my head. But I used to think that, you know, you ate, you cooked, and then cooking professionally was for professionals. And I think that something that my sister and I have learned through cooking is that cooking is for everyone. Feeding, cooking, eating well is, is our right. And um, it just so happens that you can drop a bit of happiness into what you do and the food you choose to eat and the way you choose to eat it. Do you live by yourself? No, but I don't cook all the time. Was that what you were thinking? Do well, I no, because I do like I cook for cooking for other people. But I can't, yeah. I'm just bored rigid with the idea of cooking for myself. I never bother. I know what you mean. I, I, I sometimes I don't fancy cooking at all, whether for my man, my friends or anything, which is why I love my freezer. I use and abuse it. It's packed to the rim. Um, and also I was nodding along to you because big time, I totally believe in not just what you're eating, how you're eating it and the intention that you set. And I remember growing up, my mum saying, let's say grace, let's chew properly, let's do all these things. I thought, oh, no, I just want to eat. Let's just eat. But the second you do stop, say a little thanks to yourself and try and zone in and really enjoy the taste and the flavours, it makes the experience so much better because we do inhale our food. We obsess over food, we fetishise food, and then we inhale it and then it's gone. And then we either feel guilty or we move on to the next thing. So um, I'm a big fan of everything we're talking about today. Yeah, yeah. The practice of saying grace. There's so many religious practices. They're so, so good. Even if you don't believe in God, there's all sorts of purpose behind some of those practices. Anyway, that's, a, that's for another show. Now, there's a link, Melissa, between food and happiness. Food makes you feel good. But there's also a link between food and unhappiness. People eat too much. They feel guilty about it. Let's talk about that. Mm. I've definitely come across people I've worked with, my own friends, my own background in history and food, going to school. People have very emotional connections and relationships with food, some good, some bad, some some fraught, some, some fear food, which I think is really sad. And food has become incredibly complicated. We can all see food makes headlines like nothing else. There's a lettuce shortage or everyone's eating courgettes now or why is this food being called this or you know, how did we all get obsessed with burgers all of a sudden and then, then everyone got obsessed with chia seed puddings? I think the most important thing with food, bringing food back to feel good and the joy it can bring us as well as its sole purpose, which is nourishment, I guess, is that food needn't be complicated. I think it's incredibly important to take food completely back to basics, cook with real food, whole food. And if your happy place is your Friday night takeaway, you know, watching the Graham Norton show, whatever it is, eat that food. But I would challenge anyone who thinks they can't cook to simply get out a pan and a spatula and make a soup. I think that a soup recipe is the one recipe everyone needs to have. And um, I could actually talk about soup all day long. <laughs> Someone even sent me a, a necklace that says I love soup on it because I talk about it too much. But um, I think cooking for yourself is the number one thing you can do to have a healthy relationship with food. Damien, money. We'd obviously all be nine to ten on the happiness scale if we were multi-millionaires, no, billionaires. Um, money to the Masses is a website to help people get on top of their finances. Let's talk about money and happiness. Well, there is a relationship between the two, no matter if people try and deny that what, there is. What's amazing is hearing these guys is, is such a link between food and the way you say about it makes people happy. And 
but money's the same because, like you said there, if we're all billionaires, we'd be happy. Now, that's actually not true. Money's like caffeine, okay? I always try and draw this parallel with people that I'm a, I'm a dad of two young children, so I need caffeine in the morning to get me going. But it's the one thing, it gives me a boost. It makes me feel better. It gets me going through the day. Now, money makes you feel happy in the short term. It will do for quite a long time if you have a lot of it. But fundamentally, happiness seems to have an element of you need a sense of purpose rather than just pleasure. So the sense of purpose comes from some feeling of you're achieving something. So it's interesting when you go to the extremes and look at billionaires, they almost all tend to become philanthropists. And they start trying to do something like Bill Gates will try and rid the world of malaria. So it's kind of this idea they're trying to achieve more. I'm not sure money can, obviously, buy you a certain element of happiness for a short period of time, but it's it's short-lived. And equally, if you went down the other end, there are some people who have very little money who are incredibly happy. So I think it's one of those things. It's a function. It's a bit like food. It's You've got to have a good relationship with it and understand that. For some people, they see money as their route to freedom because they no longer need to be the wage slave or whatever it is. Would you agree with that? Money well, is freedom? Well, I, I agree with that. I agree with that. But then too much money can, at the same time, it can cramp you. Money does give you freedom to go and explore, but happiness is a sense, it's a, a feeling, so you can't buy it, you can't own it. I mean, anybody who questions that idea, if I was to give you lots of money and I said, go and make a person happy, so I might point a person in the street or a family member, once you started, you'd start to quickly realise that you'd run out of ways to make them happy purely with just money. And I think what happens with most people, happiness, you have to be quite self-aware of what drives you, what uh, makes you tick. And I think we're all very aware of what makes other people tick because we can see them and our partners, we like to understand them. So actually, if you try that exercise with somebody else, I don't think most people realise it's actually quite difficult to be happy purely with money. But I definitely agree with your sentiment that it gives you a sense of freedom that is what a lot of people are looking for but then they probably need to look more inwardly to find the rest of that sure alexa can i say something you about can. that well i think let's draw an example of somebody who is a billionaire right but who suffers from you know high self-criticism or feels really extremely guilty about being that wealthy about have not having contributed anything to that let's say you know it's a child of a billionaire who knows I will inherit all of that. So I think, yes, it can bring you tremendous freedom if you have a good mental health and if you actually feel like you're deserving of it and you actually know what you want to, like what you said, like what you actually want to do in life, what you love, what makes you happy. But if you are not free in your mind, then, you know, it, it might even make things worse. You're absolutely right, Alexa. I know a billionaire recluse, but all he does is sit at home by himself and doesn't associate with everyone because he's paranoid that any time he speaks to somebody, they're only talking to him because they want him to give their after his money. Uh, on which point, Damien, tell us about 30-day money plan and how I can become as rich as my billionaire friend in 30 days. It's, it's so simple. No, the 30-day money plan was actually all about trying to get people to take action. And one of the biggest issues that we have with finance and financial education, anything you see out there, at the moment is people may understand certain principles about money but they don't actually take any action and what I wanted to do was try and teach people that it's not about perfection there's no such thing as perfect finances is they're your finances so what I was trying to teach people 
was there are simple things that you can do that can make a big impact. So it's the 80-20 principle. So 80% of your results will come from 20% of your effort. So I tried to get to the point, it was so almost ridiculous. Could I get somebody to be able to make a meaningful impact on their finances while sitting on a train, playing them on their phone on the way to work in five minutes a day? Because that's what we all do. And a very good example is one whereby people always bank with the same bank. I think most people get a bank account when they're a student and then they have it forever. And the reason that student accounts really exist is to try and encourage you to stay with them to take a mortgage. That's the idea. But we're trying to get people to switch around because it is easy now to switch bank accounts and people don't realise. They think this whole switching scheme that came in is too good to be true. And it's allowing people that on your mobile phone, this thing that they stare at on a train is actually so powerful. There's no better time to be alive and to manage your money than now because we're think there are things that we can do that people could only dream of 10, 15 years ago. So you can get somebody on a train, can switch their bank account and get the ball rolling in minutes. And that's the idea. We're trying to get the ball rolling because once something moves, it gathers pace. It's not about the, the Everest looking at... I've got so much to do. It's that that small first step. So that that's fundamentally what the book was about. If you're always looking at somebody else, I mean, I always laugh, and it's almost like I live in, terraced, in a terraced house. So it's that case of you open the curtains in the morning and you turn around to your, my wife and go, have you seen the neighbours have got decking? And it's kind of that, what we do with our finances with other people, because you then start thinking, oh, maybe we should get some decking. Yeah. And it's that idea that we all do that I think we need to pull back from and stop beating ourselves up about and it's why this podcast with different experts from different fields works so well I think mm. because you've got it's similarities between the well-being and food I'm, I'm not that with my school friends I can't bear it when they're more successful than me <laughs> um, who was, who was going to say something then I think I was, was just going to say yeah. quickly I think we've all used the word obsession and we've said let's avoid obsession let's avoid perfect the word obsession perfect keeps coming up and Alexa, you said, you know, little things you can be thankful for. And for me, it's about small changes in food, cutting down a little bit of this, adding a bit more of that. I think that's a, a big thing is there's no, sorry, but there's no one sure far way of being happy unless unless anyone around the table is going to drop it in now. Well, oh. we are going to drop it in now because <laughs> at this point I want to get into a conversation I had a little earlier with our fourth guest who has some ideas about how you might structure an approach. So, she was born in Zurich, she was brought up in Montreal, she now lives in Washington with her husband, she has an MA in Applied Positive Psychology, and she writes about culture and psychology for The Atlantic, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, Newsweek, The Daily Beast, and various others. She is Emily Esfahani-Smith, and she's the author of a new book, The Power of Meaning, Crafting a Life That Matters. Emily, you're in Washington. Can you hear me okay? Hello. Hello. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. My pleasure. Now, Emily, why don't we start? I guess the best place to start is tell us why you wrote the book. Give us a, an overview. I wrote the book because several years ago, I was getting my master's degree in positive psychology, and I was also just, you know, living my life and noticing that Everywhere I turned, it seemed there was this 
emphasis on happiness. We, I think we're constantly getting the message that a good life is a happy life and that we should pursue happiness and that if we do pursue happiness, we'll be healthier and more well-liked and more successful. And indeed, in my positive psychology program, there was an emphasis on happiness and why it's important to be happy. And yet, I was puzzled because I knew that I myself, even though I liked to feel happy, I, I didn't always feel happy and that the people who I knew who were leading really rich lives weren't always happy and they didn't set happiness as their goal and pursue it. And yet their lives were still good. You know, these were teachers and, and nurses and entrepreneurs really doing work to kind of make the world a better place for other people. And so... I started digging into the positive psychology research, and I noticed that there was this distinction emerging in the research between a happy life and a meaningful life. And that really intrigued me, and I wanted to learn more about it. And I wanted to know, well, how do our lives look if we pursue meaning instead of happiness? And what is meaning? I want you to answer that question now. How can we lead more meaningful lives? So I'll say just a word about the difference between happiness and meaning. So psychologists define happiness as a positive mental and emotional state. So if you feel good, you're happy. And if you feel bad, you're unhappy. But meaning is about connecting and contributing to something that's bigger than you are. And when people say their lives are meaningful, it's because they feel like their lives matter. They feel that their lives are driven by a sense of purpose, and they feel that their lives are coherent. So they're not random, but they have some kind of order and a sense to them. And when you look at what people say provides those things, what people say makes their lives meaningful, it tends to fall into one of four categories I found. And these are categories that I kind of, I came up with in my own analysis of the research. So one is they feel a sense of belonging. In other words, they have relationships and not just any kind of relationship, a relationship that's defined by feeling like you matter and are valued and treating others in turn like they matter and like they're valued. The second pillar of meaning is purpose. And purpose is really an organizing goal of your life that somehow involves making a contribution to other people. So one person's purpose might be, you know, curing cancer or writing a great novel that will bring him immortality and, and be a classic. But purpose can also be more local. So, so another person's purpose could be being a really good friend or parent or contributing to your local community in some way. So purpose is the second pillar of meaning. The third pillar really taps into the coherence part of meaning that I mentioned earlier, and it's storytelling. So storytelling is all about how we take our disparate experiences and weave them into a narrative that explains who we are and where we came from. It's basically how we understand ourselves and understand our experiences. So it's the act of sense-making, and it's particularly important when we've had kind of a difficult event or a difficult chapter in our life to really spend some time reflecting on it and making sense of it and, and trying to integrate it into the broader story of our lives. The final pillar is what I call transcendence. These are experiences of awe or encounters that you have with beauty where you just feel lifted up out of 
the ordinary realm of waking consciousness and connect it to something much bigger. So some people have these experiences within a religious framework, so in prayer or meditation, but other people have them in nature or by listening to music or encountering a really beautiful work of art. So many people have had these experiences, most people in fact, and they rate them as among the most meaningful of their lives. So when you talk to people about what makes their lives meaningful or when you consult the research on it, they typically talk about one of these four pillars that I just mentioned, belonging, purpose, storytelling, and transcendence. I suppose on the subject of transcendence, uh, transcendence and euphoria, and we experience euphoria when we have moments of incredible success or, you know, perhaps we have artificial stimulants or we have that moment when we're sitting on the rock on the beach at the end of the day. What's the difference between kind of euphoria, the dangers of chasing euphoria as opposed to contentment? That's a great question. And there's actually been this kind of new and growing body of psychology research that kind of hits at what you're talking about. So contemporary ideas of happiness are very much hedonic and based on how we feel. And this new research suggests that if we're kind of chasing that hedonic happiness, this euphoria that you're talking about, pursuit of that kind of happiness can actually breed unhappiness. Whereas if we kind of devote ourselves to meaningful pursuits to building those four pillars of meaning that I talked about, that we actually experience contentment, so a a deeper form of well-being down the road that's a little bit more complicated and enduring than this euphoria that you're talking about. So euphoria, it's wonderful to feel this kind of elation, but I think we have to realize that its it shouldn't be the goal. It's something that ensues and comes from other pursuits that we're doing. Oh, in that case, I'm not going on the razzle this evening. <laughs> what are your four pillars of happiness? What, what makes you happy? You know, relationships and transcendence are very important to me. Actually, I created a quiz on my website to help people figure out what their pillar of meaning is. And so the idea is that once you figure out what pillar is yours, you can go and build that pillar more in your life. So when I take that quiz, I either get belonging or transcendence. So my relationships are very important to me. And I also really kind of live for those moments of just peace and stillness where Things for a moment just seem to make sense. The conflicts and the anxiety dissolves and I feel connected to something bigger. And so the book is called The Power of Meaning, Crafting a Life That Matters. What a great pleasure it's been to talk to you and hopefully we'll get you on the show when you write your next book. I'd love that. It's been a pleasure speaking to you as well. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Live Life Better from Virgin Books in association with Penguin Living. With me, Dominic Frisbee. I'm talking happiness with Alexa Frey, Melissa Hemsley and Damien Fay. And we've just heard from Emily Esfahani-Smith there, the author of The Power of Meaning. She gave us four pillars, belonging, purpose, storytelling and transcendence. Alexa, does that ring some bells with you? Yeah, I was just listening to all those terms and was just trying to put them in into mindfulness and into the mindfulness world and i would say belonging is the whole thing about you know having compassion for ourselves so in a way belonging to ourselves because we can be very disconnected to ourselves so self-care self-compassion but also having compassion for other people and other beings and feeling interconnected because if we're feeling lonely then we're unhappy i would say and then the second one 
was a sense of purpose. And I think in traditional, you know, Buddhist teachings, although we're operating secular, everything's about intention and attention. So having an intention in our lives. Otherwise, where are we actually going and where are we placing our attention to? It's chaos. And um, storytelling, I would just like to reframe that. I mean, there's so many stories we tell ourselves in our heads, the glasses that we see the world through. And I mean, that just determines our happiness fundamentally. So if I tell myself that everybody's a bad, bad person, everybody's out there to get me, you guys are all bad people, <laughs> then I'm not going to have a good time, right? So I How think... How many people have you seen in your life talk themselves into having a bad experience? I think we all do it's it. happened to me. Yeah, yeah, I think 100% because we have we have something called a negativity bias. So first of all, we're all always self-referential. So we have a tendency to always think about ourselves. And then we also have a tendency made by this is how all of our brains work, that we have a tendency to look for what might happen. So what's lurking? Some of us have it more, some of us have it less, but we all have it. So we think about ourselves and about our life and then with a negativity bias. So, yeah, what kind of stories are we telling ourselves? And when it comes to transcendence, I really like that one. But to me, as a mindfulness practitioner, I think I've experienced transcendence in ways of what I said before about, you know, feeling suddenly like whatever, sitting on Primrose Hill, meditating, opening my eyes and suddenly being like, boom, like, wow, look at this tree. Look how many leaves that tree has. And look at all those people. Wow. Somehow we're all connected and really, really feeling that and getting happiness out of that. Or suddenly just realizing in a moment when you're walking home, wow, there's so many things I can actually be grateful for. And then you look up and there are the stars in the sky that don't want to be too cheesy, but, <laughs> you know, being really present and feeling gratitude. And I think that to me is transcendence. It's actually nothing too far away, but it's actually mm -hmm. something that we can all experience, could all experience here right now, probably in, within the next minute. Yeah. Great stuff. Melissa, how much transcendence do you experience when you cook something and suddenly all those flavours come together in a moment of pure indulgence and exhilaration? <laughs> well, I think I like what you said about the day-to-day -day transcendence, the almost humble transcendence in my head. I'm the daughter of a an army man and a Filipino mom. So I, I like to not spend too much money. So for me, say I go down to a market and I get that end of the day deal and I get a big bag of beautiful vegetables and um, I take them home and I throw them all in a pot and it's about as simple as that and I put the lid on and then I make an amazing, incredible soup. <laughs> I was about to say, you know, a dish and then I went, it is a soup. It's a soup. I make this incredible soup and that is, you know, you, get, you say before like it's a getting close to nature, it's grown from the ground, it's delicious, it's beautiful, and it very simply has come together and it's going to feed people, nourish them, be delicious. And it's really, calorie. Um, who's counting calories? I think I number am. one thing, are you counting calories? Well, I'm doing that 5-2 diet, so I always oh, have vegetable you? soup on my on my two days. Oh, really? Well, I'd yeah. like to know what soup you're making. I can. Um, I I'm, should give you I'm some... I'm making co-op vegetable soup. <laughs> What's it? Oh, you mean bought? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you should make it because then you'll be happier. Okay, give us a recipe then. Your best vegetable soup. Okay, so this one's on the menu at our cafe at Selfridges, but really 
don't go to Selfridges. No, I'm joking, Selfridges. Um, go to the cafe at Selfridges, but make it yourself. You threw that one in, our cafe at Selfridges, as though everyone has a cafe <laughs> at Selfridges. Well, you can't just throw, what, what cafe in Selfridges? Just a cafe at Selfridges, oh, you know. Okay. Oh, yeah. No, it's a lovely cafe, third floor Selfridges. Come yeah. see us. I bet you do um, a lot of mindfulness when you're walking around your cafe in Selfridges. <laughs> um, I, well, I, I mindfully avoid all the clothes because I don't <laughs> want to buy all of Selfridges every time I have to go into the cafe. I know the feeling. Um, the soup, squash and ginger soup. So you can oh, get squash wow. anywhere now, right? Any squash you like, any pumpkin you like. Um, you can either throw it all in the oven and roast it, which will bring out, make mm. it even more delicious. But you could just throw it into the pan. Some young squash you don't even need to peel because always the peeling's the faff, right? Mm-hmm. Throw it in with lots of ginger or use ground ginger. Put the lid on and let it simmer away. And when it's done, it's done. You almost can't mess it up. Just that, nothing just simple else. Simple that. Yeah, it could just be ginger and squash. You Not could start even adding ketchup or anything. <laughs> Oh, I was just about to say, oh, no, not ketchup. You don't need the ketchup. You've got the punch from the um, ginger. No, of course, some sea salt and stuff. But as simple as that, and I promise you, I'm sort of, I am fetishizing, as I said, don't suit. But I find when I feel sad, I feel things aren't going well. I genuinely find this one thing helps me out. I make soup or I make any other dish and I give it away. I give it to my neighbor. I give it to someone on the street. I give it to someone at work. And the act of doing something for someone else, no matter if it's just a bowl of squash, makes me feel better. And do you remember back in the day and someone moved into the area and you took them around a lasagna or someone was unwell or had some bad news or someone died, you took them food. I think doing that, doing something where you do it for someone else to let them know that you care is a number one way of cheering yourself up at the same time. It's a big, selfish pat on the back. Yeah, what a good thing. My mum does that. And people are so grateful when you bring them around some food. You're like, oh, my goodness me. And, you know, she wins loads of hearts and minds. It's capitalism at work. It benefits her, yes. but it benefits the recipients as well. Everyone benefits. Right. Maybe I shouldn't have said, called it capitalism. But anyway, Damien, uh, on the subject of capitalism, money, 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 and these four pillars of happiness. I mean, those four pillars, they're very interesting. They are relevant to money. For example, the belonging one is actually one of the reasons that people become unhappy because people always want to belong, so they want the latest thing, they want to purchase the latest object. And therefore, in the world of credit, like these days you can have access to credit that it wasn't possible for previous generations. So if you're 1920, there is no reason to have to save up for a rainy day because in credit land it never rains. So ultimately you can... Not until they put up interest rates. Not until they put up interest rates, but then it's only a bit dark and grey. So you can keep buying things. So what happens is people keep doing that and ultimately they get huge debts and et cetera, et cetera. So you've got to try and move away from that. You've got to try and not to use credit. And that's actually fundamentally one of the issues in the UK and globally is about low interest rates and about the availability of credit. And it actually helped our economy, but it actually caused people to be fundamentally unhappy as well. I think there is something in that. It's a wider thing. I mean, the sense of purpose we mentioned earlier, which I think is very true. And in terms of storytelling, I mean, I'm, I'm listening to you guys. And I mean, I loved hearing your soup story. I didn't realise soup was as interesting until I, until <laughs> yeah. I met you. And so I'm sitting there thinking... My views have changed yeah. as well. And, and <laughs> the idea that you get somebody who's so passionate about something, that other people, therefore, they want to belong to your story and they want to listen. And then actually, in time, you can then make money from that. But... The thing is, if you, for people out there who listen to this, if you, the sole reason for doing anything is money, you'll never care enough about it, which is fundamentally what goes back to the city and things like that. So ultimately, if you can try and do all of those things and put them together, you'll probably get that 
transcendence point at the end where you actually will not worry about the money, but money will actually start to follow you. And there's some great examples of people out there who've done that sort of thing. Well, dear listener, I think you will agree that we have, over the course of the last half hour or so, completely solved the problems of happiness, what it is and how we can achieve it. As we close, I'm going to go around each person at the table and you give yourself a quick plug, mention your book, your website, your Twitter feed, that kind of thing. And we will start off with Mrs Mindfulness herself, (laughs) Alexa Frey. So... I'm the co-founder of The Mindfulness Project, and you can find us on londonmindful.com. And our book is called I'm Here Now, A Creative Mindfulness Guide and Journal. And Twitter and Facebook, they're also London Mindful. Very good. And now we have Melissa Soup Hemsley. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to get that tattooed. Um, Yes, so I am uh, the co-author of Good and Simple and another great book, if I do say so myself, called The Art of Eating Well. We have a cafe at Selfridges. You can come and eat soup with us or you can make it yourself, which I really recommend. And we are Hemsley and Hemsley.com and I'm Instagram.com forward slash Melissa.Hemsley. I'm going to add soup in there somewhere. And yeah, I think that if you can observe the link between the food that makes you feel good, that's the number one step. And know that if you think you can't cook, you absolutely 1000% can. Damien. And go and check out moneytothemasses.com. That's the website that was actually founded. I used to work in the city and then decided to quit that after my daughter was born. And you have one of those moments, those where you think, what am I doing in my life? And actually, I couldn't afford my own hourly rate that's been charged to very rich people. And so I ended up creating that website that gave away all that knowledge. And we now get about between one and a half, two million people a year come and read all the stuff we write about. So have a look at that and we do a podcast, Money to the Masses, and obviously the book, and you can always contact me. And the book is called? The 30-Day Money Plan. And should I do a quick round of how happy we all are? Alexa? Of course, 10. Ah, Melissa? I'm buzzing, I'm a 10. 10. Oh, I'm only minus one. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks once again to my guests, Alexa Frey, Melissa Hemsley and Damien Fay. And you can find out more about the authors on this show over at virgin.com, where you'll also find motivational tips, podcasts and advice. And we'd love to hear how this show has inspired you to live life better. Get involved with the conversation on Twitter at Penguin Living UK using the hashtag Live Life Better. Live Life Better is a Pixiu production for Virgin Books in association with Penguin Living. Join us again in two weeks' time. But for now, from me, goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>